According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time, if you would, in John chapter 13. Actually, before that, let's look once again at Luke 22. Luke 22, and then we'll turn to John 13. This should be our final lesson in episode 21. We have combined episodes 20 and 21 into a single outline development. The revealing of the traitor and his departure, and then the warning to the remaining 11 disciples about further desertion. And uh, today ought to wrap this up. I kind of thought last week was going to wrap it up, but that's okay. Lord knows what he's doing. Luke chapter 22. That means we will be prepared to get into episode 22 when uh, we come back in March. And that will be the uh, communion service, the Lord's table, as Jesus introduces uh, communion to the eleven. Luke 22. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, sanctifying our time, our thinking, and everything in humility for the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your Word, the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you for uh, everything that you have made provision for us, Father, to be here today, the schedule and time and health and finances and transportation and and everything, Father. Uh, reward the volition of those that made the determination that this is the priority. Bless our time in the Word of God today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Main point seven in the development. Judas's departure occasions warnings to the eleven. Judas's departure occasions warnings to the eleven. We see the same thing in the church age, by the way, uh, where it is necessary for divisions to exist among you. And in part, I believe it. It's necessary for those divisions in order that those who are approved may be manifest. And some that go out, go out because they were, um, they were among us, but not really of us. And uh, some of the things that will happen, lessons that a, a flock can learn from in the aftermath of a, of a split or the aftermath of a, of a uh, disruption with the departure of certain folks. Uh, but any time uh, somebody in unbelief uh, departs, for those that have remained in faith, there's lessons to be learned because any of us can fall away. Uh, take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Uh, it's only pride that says, oh, well, it would never be me. All right. Hebrews says any one of you. Yes, even you. The prideful one saying, oh, it would never be me. <laughs> All right. So we want to we want to learn these lessons. And uh, this is what we're studying here under point seven. Judas's departure occasions warnings to the eleven. And uh, under this, we saw A, B and C. And then we arrived at D. Whereby Luke, the Gospel of Luke, records an important exhortation regarding the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And so once again, this is really the material we covered a week ago, verses 31 through 38. I want to simply stress as we move from D to E that uh, again, we have something that is new. We have something that is unique, something that was not a feature previously. Uh, Luke records an important exhortation regarding the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, the demand on Satan's part to sift like wheat, to sift like wheat. 
And uh, a question was asked, uh, you know, in the sifting process, are we the stuff that's left in the pan or are we the stuff that's carried away by the wind, right? And uh, I have never really carried the metaphor that far to, to figure out uh, what Satan's purpose is in, in sifting. It's just a, it's just a, uh, it is a sifting process. It's an imitation of God's sifting process, of course, because God himself will, will sift us with testing. Uh, but when Satan is sifting, it's not for our benefit, and it's not for our growth, and it's not for our approval. God sifts us, and, and the, the chaff is blown away in the wind, and the good stuff is, remains, and then God has proven, approved that which is good, and that's God's process. Satan's objective is just the opposite, of course, to tear us down and to, to uh, maybe have us carried away with the wind. Maybe that's his process <laughs> related to that. Now, uh, recognizing this, he says, but I have prayed for you. But I have prayed for you. And this is part of the contrast between Satan demanded and Christ prayed, Christ um, requested. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so what do we have here? We find in this intensified stage of the angelic conflict, we find that there's attack against believers, but we have an intercessor who's involved in prayer. That is Jesus Christ himself, the apostle and a high priest of our confession. And we have the opportunity for brothers to pray for one another. See, the brethren to pray for one another. Now, this is foreshadowing of the church. The church is still mystery. He's not talking about flocks and lampstands and local churches yet. But when he does say, strengthen your brothers, your brethren, we have language that's consistent with what we will understand completely after Pentecost, after mystery doctrine is unveiled and so forth. So we want to understand this newness. We have three subpoints under this, and the third of which, subpoint three, the ministry of the eleven is now different than it was previously. And he starts to spotlight this when he's asking them to contrast what's happening now with what they've been exposed to previously. He said to them, When I sent you out without money bag and belt and sandals, or money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And so he's transitioning them. He's walking them through what they saw before, what they learned before, what, and what they can expect now moving forward. And he said to them, but now, but now. So why is it different? Why is it different? What is the, the distinction? Now the adversary has departed. Uh, Judas has gone out to effect the betrayal. Jesus is going to be going to the cross and, and uh, departing. They're going to have to start to operate in a manner without him being among them. Part of the newness of what, uh, what they have to look forward to. Preparing them to operate in his absence. Alright. This includes swords, by the way. Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Is there a place for self-defense in uh, the intensified stage of the angelic conflict? Alright, so the newness. And it's this newness that we really spent time with last week and will prepare us now for what we're going to cover under point E. And this is where we go over to John 13. Point E, the final point of study. John records the Lord's emphasis on immediate glory and the new commandment. John records the Lord's emphasis on immediate glory and the new commandment. The new commandment, by the way, is a church age commandment. He's not adding an 11th commandment to the Decalogue or an 11th commandment that Israel would be in expecting to, uh, to fulfill. This requires the new relationship as one body in Christ. 
and uh, uh, positional truth with the baptism of the Holy Spirit to make this commandment possible. So our final point of study under seven, there are subpoints, but our final point of study under seven is point E. John records the Lord's emphasis on immediate glory and the new commandment. John 13, verses 31 through 35. All right, John 13. Join me there. That worked out pretty well. I didn't have to say anything. A little hand signal. John 13, verses 31 through 35. Again, we have the term now. Therefore, when he had gone out, when Judas had departed, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of God, I'm sorry, the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Immediate glory. We we want to recognize what this immediate glory is speaking to. Because this is characteristic of our church age. It was not characteristic of the age of Israel. Not characteristic of the age of the Gentiles. I believe it was not characteristic of the uh, angelic stewardship either. Even though we think of the angels as being a, a realm of glory. We think of the spirit beings as being beings of light. Beings of glory. Um, that's not to say that that's what it was in their stewardship. Before they reached this Glory status. All right. For the elect angels anyway. In glory status. But he says, now is the Son of Man glorified at this moment with with Judas's departure. And we have, similar to what we saw in in Luke, we have the recognition that the way things have been prior to to this is not the way it's going to be moving forward. Moving forward is going to be something new. Something different. Okay? And in... The, the importance for pinpointing this is, is with our hindsight and our recognition that church is not yet revealed. That mystery doctrine is not unveiled until the day of Pentecost. Until the, the full doctrine of mystery is then given to the apostles and prophets. Jesus can't reveal the church in, Luke, in John 13 or Luke 22. All he can do is start to give previews and start to say, now moving forward, things are going to be a little bit different. You're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me. You're going to seek me, but I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be with my father. We're going to send you another helper. Things are going to be different moving forward. He doesn't say, though, that, of course, it's going to be a whole new stewardship, a whole new dispensation. Israel is going to be in a partial hardening, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit will place you in one body in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. Okay? He can't go into all of that prior to Pentecost. And in his humanity, likely he doesn't even know any of that prior to Pentecost in his humanity. Okay? The pro- Old Testament prophets were looking forward only knowing that which had been unveiled. Now, given that he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession, I suspect that he had a lot more unveiled than he spoke in these chapters. Nevertheless, we want to identify that these chapters are church age application. Church age application. When, when Jesus is warning Peter in Luke 22 that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That's church age application. That's not the dispensation of Israel. Likewise, John 14, 15, 16, 17. What we often call the upper room discourse is church age material. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's church age material. 
And uh, was it spoken in the age of Israel? Yes, it was spoken in the age of Israel. But it's church age material. And uh, hopefully we're going to be very clear on that. Now, let's, uh, let's read through here and then we'll come back and make comment related to this. And uh, hopefully we'll <coughs> understand <coughs> this immediate glory. I think we're almost done with cedar, and I'm hoping so. I'm hoping we're almost done with cedar. I'm waiting for that season to be over. Ideally, I'll come back from Ukraine, and there'll be no more cedar season until next year. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, and he is, God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, there's different reasons for this. The Jewish religious leaders couldn't come because most of them weren't even saved. But the the, uh, disciples here are saved. Why can they not come? Well, Not right now. It's not the will of God right now. And we're going to see that uh, in verse 36. Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So it's the purpose and timing of uh, when the apostles will join the Lord in heaven. But the, the apostles have to remain on earth. The apostles have to transition from Israel to church. And they have to lay that foundation for the coming stewardship. So where I'm going, uh, what I said to the Jews now, I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And this is a commandment, not the 11th commandment given to the stewardship of Israel, but a new commandment that will have its application in the body of Christ in the church age. That even as I have loved you is critical. It includes the death on the cross. It includes, like we see in Ephesians 5, for husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her. All right. It includes the imperative to wash uh, with the word and sanctifying one another as we minister the word of God and its cleansing power. All right. So this is the new commandment. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is our testimony. This is the the testimony of the bride for the lost and dying world. The testimony of the bride towards the unregenerate related to our position in Christ that we are disciples. It is the agape love that we express toward one another. All right. So, details on this now. Four things I want to give you out of this. Four things. First of all, let's start with the now. Now. The glorification could not take place until the betrayal. This now. It required Jesus Christ's obedience. The victory that he achieved on the cross. You realize the glory that he receives when he ascends to the Father is greater than the glory he had from eternity past. It's hard to grasp in some ways. Because the glory he had in eternity past was an infinite glory. How do we add to infinity? 
Okay? He shared God the Father's glory. He has all the glory of deity as God the Son. Sharing all the glory of deity that God the Father possesses, that God, that God the Holy Spirit possesses, God the Son from eternally, eternity past has that infinite, eternal glory of deity. But He has added to that additional glory. And glory that the Bible tells us very clearly is a consequence of His obedience. It is, a, it is a reflection of His work of redemption. A work that is signed, sealed, and delivered with the departure of the adversary here. The impact of the now in verse 31. I would relate it to a similar statement we saw uh, <clears throat> back in chapter 12. Reminding you of what we saw here. When on Palm Monday, as Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, of course the Roman church likes to call it Palm Sunday, but I believe Monday is the accurate day related to this. Uh, they make the triumphal entry, the children are singing Hosanna, the religious leaders are all in a dither uh, trying to tell Jesus to tell them to shut up. And in the process of this, there's also Gentiles that are being brought. Gentiles that are being brought, which is huge. Jesus, for most of his earthly ministry, was uh, limited to Israel. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For his teaching ministry, he limited it to Israel. But here, as he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's going to die on the cross for all humanity. On the first day in town, what happens? A bunch of Gentiles are brought to him. And in this, in this context then, he says, uh, and this is where he says it's necessary to die. The hour has come. That's John twelve twenty three. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. After three and a half years of saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Now he's in Jerusalem. He's had his triumphal entry, humble, riding on a colt. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not to suffer, <laughs> to be glorified. Is suffering necessary for that? Yep. But he doesn't say the hour has come to suffer. The hour has come to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We saw that on Sunday in the communion service. Had he not gone to the cross, he could have gone to heaven and demanded entrance, being righteous and sinless and perfect. But he would have been alone. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Because of his death, he brings many sons to glory. So he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Now that's where I am, there he will be. Keep this in mind because this is what we're dealing with with Peter. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You will come later, but not immediately. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what did that, what, what was the consequence of that? His soul had become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now here's the voice. A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and we'll glorify it again. And we'll glorify it again. 
Four days later, from Monday to Thursday, is when the traitor walks out, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Okay? And immediately. Immediately. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel spoke to him. They're all clueless. <laughs> all right. They're all clueless. And this, we want to keep this in mind as it relates to the immediate glory we're going to study. Because this is our, uh, this is descriptive of our walk. We are pilgrims and strangers here. And the unbelievers of this world and the carnal believers, sad to say, non-disciple, regenerate folks, they're, they're going to be just as clueless. They don't understand why you're in Bible class all the time. They don't understand what your spiritual priorities are. You're talking to them about keeping your armor on and listening for the trumpet. And they're like, what's that? What are you talking about? Because, you know, their whole understanding of Christianity is just kind of, you know, be a good person, follow the golden rule, go to church, live, live your life right, go to heaven when you die. They've got a, a total ethical, moral, ethical understanding. And, and really, it's no different than what a secular humanist would would base their life on. You know, just be nice, be a good person. You have spiritual foundations and priorities and perspective and an eschatological hope. And so, uh, you and I are going to encounter things similar to this as well. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And I want you to see what the glory is tied into. The glory is tied into victory over Satan. Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The fact that four days from the time he's speaking this, he's going to be on a cross. He's going to be disarming the rulers and the authorities. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Now the literal expulsion from heaven doesn't take place until the tribulation. The literal expulsion. When, when Satan no longer has access to the Father's courts for his accusations. He still has access there today. He will be cast out. And it's going to happen because of the tactical victory that's won this coming Friday. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Alright, so here's his glory. It's a glory that, they sp that he spoke of on Monday. It's a glory that he's speaking of now Thursday. Thursday night. Midnight is approaching. His arrest is imminent. And he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Secondly, the Father will glorify the Son immediately. The Father will glorify the Son immediately. Immediate glory. This is not down the road. There will be more glory that will come down the road. But there is an immediate glory that is applied by the Father. We want to understand that because we share in it. And if we fail to embrace it, if we fail to even understand that it exists, then I think we can lose heart waiting for the eventual glory when we get to heaven. If we can remain, uh, keep our thinking centered on the glory that is immediate, then perhaps that will spur us and encourage us and, and uh, serve to be uh, a, a goad that will keep us from losing heart. All right? Because we will reap in due time if we do not lose heart. And the provision God makes so that we don't lose heart is what this glory is talking about. 
The Father will glorify the Son immediately. These, these are true circumstances. Now, in 13.32, it says immediately, if, and if, and he does. If God is glorified in him, well, he is. Let's back up to verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, but it's not for his own sake. God is glorified in him. That's God the Father is glorified in the glorification of God the Son. You see how that works? Might help us if we put little F's and S's in there. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> or color code it. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God the Father is glorified in Christ. In Christ. In Him. Does that help by rewording it in Christ? Because realize what's being introduced here. <clears throat> Jesus cannot unfold mystery doctrine to say, He can't just spill the beans on Ephesians to say, here's your new positional truth in Christ. But he can say, in Him. And that's what he says here. In Him. That the Father is glorified in Him, in Christ. In the Son of Man. In the glorification of the Son of Man is the Father glorified. In terms of... Um, Well, let me hold off on that. We'll, we'll expand on that here in a moment. Let's look at John 17, and I'll show you how this relates across. This will be spelled out more completely when he utters out this prayer. <clears throat> I believe this is the true Lord's Prayer, not the pattern prayer that he gives when the disciples say, teach us how to pray, the, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's typically labeled the uh, Lord's Prayer. I think that's the baby disciple prayer. This is the Lord's prayer in a mature prayer of, a, of, a, uh, of his priesthood heading towards the cross. All right, and this is right on the way to the Kidron Valley where he enters into the garden. And in verse 21, well, backing up a little bit. Okay, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm just going to hit some highlights for you. <laughs> John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Remember he said, if, he glorifies, uh, if he's glorified, he will glorify the Father. The Father will glorify him. So, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. Now, here's the key. How do you glorify God? How did, how did Christ glorify God? I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You want to glorify God? Do the work that you're given to do. You're going to glorify God. Remember, glorification is how you communicate the high regard that you hold uh, God or his word or his promises or his work assignment. So glorify God. This is how he said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, he's going to regain what he laid aside. Remember in Kenosis, Philippians 2, what did Jesus do? 
He laid aside his privileges. He set aside his glory. He came humbly. He came in the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of man. He, uh, he occupied a, a womb for nine months. Okay? How humbling is that? What was he doing for those nine months? What capacity of thought did he even have? Part of the mystery of the whole kenosis thing is how did he diminish his um, intelligence? How did he diminish? How did he sovereignly, omnipotently place restraints upon his omniscience? To me, man, that's a deep mystery and I want to understand that. How he could limit his soul and spirit to um, information that was limited by the experience of his, of his human walk. All right. And yet we're told that he did. Here in this verse, though, he's looking forward to the moment when he can take that glory back up. <clears throat> the glory that I had with you before the world was. Goes on to say, um, talking about them. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the cosmos. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Remember, all souls belong to God the Father. He is the Father and Creator. Every family in heaven and earth derives its name from the Father. That includes the unbelieving families. <clears throat> but when the Father gives an unbeliever to Christ, this is a part of the drawing work, the convicting work. This is part of the, the preparation work of grace that precedes the uh, acceptance of the gospel offer. And every single one that, Jesus, that the Father gives to Jesus does believe. Every single one. Every single one. And Jesus does not lose even one. Now, um, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And the words which you gave me, I've given to them. And they received them and truly understood that it came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. Now, here's, here's we start to see content of how our advocate prays for us and intercedes on our behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but on behalf of those whom you have given me. This is huge. Jesus is not the intercessor for the cosmos like He is for us. Do you see the distinction there? I do not ask on behalf of the cosmos, but on, those, on behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's who He pleads for. That's who He pleads for in His intercessory prayer ministry. Of course, not who he died for he died for our sins and the sins of the whole world but who does he pray for he only prays for us you see the difference there and and the people that try to deny first john 2 2 have no answer for this this is a distinction between those whom god gives the son and the whole world and i think you've got to recognize that this these passages control one another hermeneutically speaking. All right. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world. Well, you know, he's talking pending, you know, very imminently. He'll be on the cross. Very imminently he's going to die. Very imminently he is no longer in the world. <clears throat> he's actually factually gone as far as public ministry is concerned. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. So you see, this, this speaks to us today. He, he can say these words today. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. This is a part of how you and I are glorified in the Father. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Judas was the only unbeliever among the twelve, the only perishing one, the son of perdition. Did I say I was not going to read this entire chapter? All right. There's just so much good stuff in here. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full on themselves. They've got to learn how to operate with their head in heaven and the body on earth, and how they can still have this joy. He says, uh, okay, I'll skip 14. How about that? Verse 15. No, I'll read verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. All right? But what sustains us? The word, of, the word of God. We're commended to the Word and the Word of His grace. And that's what sustains us. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. He said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like we, but I have prayed for you. Keep them from the evil one. Hedge them about. Protect them. Sustain them. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. You want to be hedged about from the uh, adversary? Be sanctified in the truth. Complete suit of armor. Starting with your belt of truth. So they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. So this is, this is such a beautiful thing looking forward to the coming church age. And this is the reality we live day by day. We should be sanctified in the truth. Now when you see this immediate glory, look at this now. This immediate glory. It's not just for these 12. It's not just for these, uh, well, 11 and then Adam Matthias. And it's not just for the 12. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Every church age saint that ever comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. Every born again believer from Pentecost to rapture has a direct application of this chapter. That they may all be one. A unity here, Father. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This, this I and the Father are one. Oh, that drove the Pharisees up a wall. But we need to cling to that. Because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then he says, we also are that same one in Christ, in the Father. This is the immediate glory of how we live. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the cosmos may believe that you sent me. Now, Antichrist is going to dispute that. The spirit of Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. But you and I operate in unity with the Father and the Son. Do you see how that contrast works? It's an awesome responsibility. It's thoroughly descriptive of the church age. Still in mystery form, and yet, now we have a hindsight, we look back at it and we just rejoice over the meat of these chapters. Now we reach glory. And this glory only is expressed as we, as we experience the reality of this unity in the Father and in the Son. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now, if there's ever a time that you feel not very glorified in your feelings, 
then just reorient doctrinally to how you are glorified in reality. Positional truth, reality. Those that he called, he also justified. Those that he justified, he also glorified. We are glorified. That is the reality. We don't always live like it. And we don't always recognize it. Oftentimes our thinking is so far from our glorified state, it's pathetic. But it's true. Similar to our, the state of our being dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a reality. Our thinking doesn't always conform to that reality. Because our thinking sometimes gets wrapped up in the insanity of, of, of carnality, doesn't it? The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. The glory which you have given me. Now, this is not the pre-existent glory that he's looking to take up again. This is not the glory he's asking for. Notice in verse 5, he says, glorify me, but that's different. That's a glory he hasn't received yet. He's still asking for, but here is the glory he's already given him. The, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The Father's already given it to the Son. The Son has already given it to these eleven. And by extension, it will, it will spread to the entire church age once Pentecost unfolds. What is this glory? It's the glory of unity. It's the glory of positional truth unity. And he's already given it to these eleven. Um, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the cosmos may know that you did send me and love them even as you have loved me. All right. Well, relax. We'll have more on this coming up. Let's finish out down through verse 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Now, Remember what we talked about when we talked about his prayer that you might not stumble, that you would not stumble, but you, when you return again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, there's prayers of things that cannot happen or cannot happen immediately. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Well, that will happen in time. It won't happen immediately. But even now it can happen uh, in our thinking. Right? I can't literally be in heaven today, but where's my attention supposed to be focused? Where's my thinking supposed to be? Where's my viewpoint supposed to be centered? It's supposed to be centered in heaven. You've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. But don't wait till then. Right now, keep your focus there. Keep your focus there. This is how we, we live in glory today. Be with Him now so that they may be, see my glory. I desire that they be with me. Now, you can't be with Him in, in body, but can you be with Him in spirit? Yes, you can, and you're supposed to be. Paul told the Corinthians, I'm absent in person, but with you in spirit. When you are assembled and the Lord Jesus with you. Understand how this works. So I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me. Spiritually, mentally, in spirit and in truth. 
And this is descriptive of a mystery age. It's not yet unfolded, but he's giving us previews. He's giving these 11 disciples tantalizing previews. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. All right, so there's the, the past of what he's made known in his earthly ministry, the incarnation, traveling with his disciples. But then he says, I will make it known even more. That's the future church age ministry where we learn more related to the Father and our position in him. I will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is a part of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. This is why hope does not disappoint. <laughs> you understand why none of this was even remotely possible in the dispensation of Israel? Man, none of this was remotely possible. The greatest commandment they have was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? But our commandment is to love one another with His kind of love. The very love that He had for the Father. The very love the, the Son has for the Father. The Father has for the Son. That's the love that we're to have for one another. It's unbelievable. It's church age. Oh, it's a tremendous provision. All right. The Father will glorify the Son immediately. Thirdly, the body of Christ will operate on earth with a head seated in heaven. The body of Christ will operate on earth with the head seated in heaven. He introduces it in verse 33 and he expands upon it in chapter 16. He introduces it in verse 33 and then he expands upon it in John chapter 16. The body of Christ will operate on earth with a head seated in heaven. You know, in a lot of ways, would it have been cool to be uh, one of the 11 disciples? Of course. Would it have been cool to be alive in that century and to walk with Jesus and to, to hear his teachings and to see those things? Of course. On the, on the cool level, it's off the charts. Um, but I wouldn't trade this century for that. And I wouldn't trade the church age for the age of Israel in any respect. What does it say in verse 33? Uh, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The uh, operation of the body of Christ with a head seated in heaven. That's not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing. It means that the comforter can come. It means that we can have a head in heaven and we can have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here on earth. It means that we have the mechanism in place to interface with the Father and the Son in heaven. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit on earth, how would we be doing that? How would we have that unity with the Father and with the Son? The Son in us and the Father in the Son. How would that happen if the Holy Spirit was not here as that interface to make that happen? So you turn over to John 16 and you'll see it there in verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They, uh, they didn't respond very well to much of what he was saying here in this uh, upper room discourse. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
it is better that he goes away. The session of Jesus Christ as the heavenly head with the body on earth is a better arrangement. Because, uh, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Until, Until he is seated in heaven, the coming of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, descends at Pentecost and dwells the church, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we're going to see a number of statements in these chapters related to the Father sending the Holy Spirit, relating to the Son sending the Holy Spirit. And the truth is they both send the Holy Spirit. If you're studying pneumatology with us on Sunday nights, you you observe that, that he is the one proceeding, eternally proceeding, both from the Father and the Son. Schaefer made a big deal out of that. I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world. Will convict the world. Now remember what we saw about the world. The world is going to observe all this as they observe our love for one another, as they observe our unity with the Father and the Son. That will be convicting to this world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And it goes on and we'll describe these things. Well, we'll get there. The body of Christ will operate on earth with a head seated in heaven. That's why I love the church age. Another, another reason why I love the church age. When I had to... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, in, during the years I was working in the sheriff's department, um, you had to get permission to, for you know what they called moonlighting, for, for outside jobs, for other jobs outside the sheriff's department. You were not permitted outside employment without the sheriff's department signing off on it, giving you permission. And that was... For a lot of reasons, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be too many hours and you weren't going to be tired on duty. And they also wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be embarrassed if they found out that one of their off-duty officers was working in a immoral place or a disreputable type place and so forth. And so they had strict controls over the kind of jobs you could work, places and things you could do and stuff like that. And so every year it had to be renewed and every year I'd put my form in there and then tell them, you know, where are you working, Austin Bible Church and what's your position, pastor? And uh, they wanted to know who my supervisor was and how they could contact him. <laughs> Every single year, I wrote down the Lord Jesus Christ as my supervisor. And under how can we contact them, I wrote down, I either pray or believe or something like that. But he's in heaven, cannot be reached on an earthly phone number. Every single year I wrote that down and thinking certainly somebody's going to object or complain or say, you know, give us a real name or whatever. Never once, never once did, was there any objection to my form. Every single year was just approved, 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 and so forth. You know, <clears throat> my boss is in heaven. Take it up with him. Okay. And that's, uh, that's to our advantage. That's to our advantage that the head is in heaven. It allows him... Uh, you know, when he, when he was on earth, think about the limitations that he operated under. He was monopresent on the earth. He, was, uh, he, he could have ministry when he was face-to-face with various folks, and he could interact when he was face-to-face with different folks. But understand how he interacts now. He's in us. He is worldwide now in every single one of us. I'm going to go to Ukraine, and the Lord is there in those saints. I go to the Philippines, the Lord is there in those saints. It's an awesome thing to behold. The, the impact, the ministry that Christ has now through his body is far and away greater than anything that he had, any earthly ministry that he had during his incarnation. So it's to our advantage. This is how we operate. 
<clears throat> but keep in mind, this is also not only is it our thinking or our focus is supposed to be in heaven. Our head is in heaven. Our activity is in heaven. What we do on earth is supposed to be a reflection of what's already been done in heaven. I will give you the keys of he- uh, and what you bind on earth shall have been down in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Our earthly activity is a reflection of the heavenly activity. We need to be, we need to be aware of that. More and more. That's where our economy is. That's where we purchase. That's how we function. Finally, a new commandment for the church. Point four. The last of the subpoints, or the last of the points. Pretty sure. Yep. End of slideshow. Look at that. All right. <clears throat> Point four. A new commandment for the church. It's not a commandment for Israel. The Jews aren't commanded to love one another so the whole world will know. No. The Jews have an outreach and a stewardship. The, the uh, Israel has a stewardship function to the Gentiles. But the Gentiles are not going to know that the Jews are God's stewards because they love one another. The Gentiles will have different signs to look for. that will be undeniable that Israel is God's chosen people. Mainly, uh, they're going to be cursed for cursing Israel and blessed for blessing Israel. And by this, all Gentiles will know that Israel is God's earthly nation. But with respect to this new commandment, with respect to this new commandment, the idea of being a disciple means, first of all, you must be saved. You've got to be born again. You've got to be abiding in the truth. You've got to be abiding in the truth. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. And then you've got to be loving one another so that the testimony is observable. Not every believer does this. Not every believer abides in the word and certainly not every believer loves one another. Not every believer is a disciple. And not every disciple has a witness. You see the difference? And it's, it's a stark difference. You realize Israel had a stewardship that was independent of any salvation status. Israel was a steward as a nation, regardless of whether an individual Jew was born again or not. You know, take an unbelieving Jewish person. He's still a part of the steward nation of Israel. He's not even saved. Yeah, but that didn't matter. It didn't change the stewardship of the nation of Israel. If your dad was high priest, you're going to be the next high priest. Doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. Okay, and that we often lose sight of that, and it boggles the mind because our stewardship requires you to be saved. You cannot be a part of the body and bride of Christ without being saved. That's how you enter into the stewardship. In Israel, they entered into their stewardship by being born of whatever tribe of Israel they were born into. They're part of the steward nation. But here's this new commandment. And you love one another, even as I have loved you. That's with sacrificial, unconditional, integrity, love, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So take that, combine it with John 8. Uh, You will be a disciple if you abide in his word. But all men will know you are disciples if you love one another. Those are the two steps. Now, This gets expanded, not in the upper room discourse, but this is really going to be spelled out in John's epistles. 1 John 2, um, 1 John 3, and 2 John. This new commandment, this love for one another, comes out in the epistles of John. 1 John 2, verses 7 through 10. 1 John 3, 
verse 11, verses 14 through 18, and verse 23. And then 2 John, verse 5. And we'll, we'll wrap up with these. Let's close with 1 John. 1 John, chapter 2. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Of course, it was a new commandment when Jesus first gave this to John in John chapter 13, wasn't it? Not, not new to the church by the time 1 John is written, though. The one who says he's in the light yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in darkness. Now this is a born again individual who should know better, who's commanded to walk in the light. But in his own heart as a heart is walking in the darkness. And he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Over to chapter 3. Verse 11 says, This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, which we, that we should love one another. <clears throat> verse, 13, do not, or verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because the, we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Practical application with respect to so many of these things. Whoever has the world's goods, yet sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, you say you love your brother, but look at your closed heart. Don't see any fruit from that. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Not just a Valentine's Day card once a year or so, right? You know, you get a card and you haven't had any clues since the card last year that there's any truth to this. Has there been something shown in the 365 days in between? All right. Then in verse 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So commandment number one, get saved. Commandment number two, believe one another or love one another, love one another. Second John 5, I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, <clears throat> but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. I think John responded in John 13 in the process of his apostolic ministry. Every time he planted a church, the first doctrine he ever taught them was love one another. The commandment you've had from the beginning is love one another. All right. And this is love. And we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. <clears throat> okay. Well, we'll come back uh, in a couple of weeks. March 7th, our next uh, Wednesday morning class. And we will return back to the upper room again and we move on to the next episode, the episode dealing with communion, the Lord's table, and uh, how he introduced communion to the 11 believing disciples. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for the 
privilege, the unbelievable wealth of, of resources and assets and glory and power and grace and everything, Father, that is ours in the church age, royal family of God, Father, unique unlike anything that ever came before and and truly even anything coming after. Father, thank You for all the unfathomable riches of glory in Christ Jesus. And the more we study, the more unfathomable it becomes. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.